Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. Good to see you turning your Bibles to Galatians 2. Galatians 2 is where we're going to be. Before I get into my sermon, I did want to just thank all of you for uh, those of you that, that participated in the the Bless One Life Challenge. You know, this past fall, we had our in our Vision Sunday, we talked about uh, evangelism and prayer, making that one of the main uh, focuses of our church. And, and we had this campaign of, the, of people taking on One Life to bless and that BLESS acronym. And you guys, over the last seven months, I'm not sure about you, but I have just been so amazingly blessed by hearing the BLESS stories that you guys have shared about how you have you know, reached out to those around you. And we've had stories of all different kinds. But here's what's so encouraging is that knowing that when people stood at, stepped out on faith, they took this, this, this initiative, and there are people that will be in heaven with us in the future because of this initiative. Amen? Is that awesome? So one of the things that we're going to do is, as, as I said, the first initial phase of this will end at Easter. But the next phase that we're going to be doing will be starting next week with all of our small group leaders. So I really want to encourage you to come out to that. Just know this. We want to continue to, to, to change the culture of our church to produce a blessed culture here at Life Fellowship. So I'm excited about what the future holds. But God has been faithful. It's been good. And uh, so, and, and uh, just I rejoice in, in the, when we see God's people be faithful to represent him and to share the gospel with other people. Well, Galatians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. And one of the things that, that you and I both know of is, uh, especially in the political realm, we see this happening today and maybe even some of the culture wars that are going on today, that terms need explanation. Terms need explanation. For, exen- ter- for example, uh, when, I heard, when you hear the term gender-affirming care, that need, needs explanation, Right? Because in, in today's culture, today's society, what that really, and, and on the other side of things, people who hold, hold more for a traditional and biblical worldview of gender would say that that's not gender affirming at all. And so there are times in our life when things are said that they need explanation. And it happens for a lot of things, maybe even in your, in your marriage relationship. You're, you, know, you will ask something or your kids will ask you something and you're like, what do you mean by that? And there's explanation that is needed. Paul makes this amazing claim in verses uh, 15 and 16 of, of Galatians 2 that the just, or that in order to be justified, justification happens not by the works of the law, but through faith. Just to back up and, and to kind of summarize where we've been, Galatians is a letter, as, as Jason mentioned. It's a letter that Paul wrote almost as a as a reaction to what he's hearing of these Judaizers, people that are going in behind Paul to the churches he's planted and has said, listen, Paul didn't teach you the whole Bible. If you really want to be a follower of God, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning and there's this thing called the law, the Torah, and Abraham was circumcised, you've got to be circumcised. There's these Ten Commandments and there's all, this, all these regulations and there's these festivals. And if you want to be a genuine follower of Yahweh, You've got to do the whole thing. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the point of the gospel. The point of Jesus' coming was not to make Gentiles Jewish. It was to make, make sinners repent and make new, have new life in Jesus Christ. And so that's the tension that Paul's sharing. And he, he goes right into it in the very first chapter and says, there's only one gospel. There's only one message. And what you heard from these guys is not the right message. 
He then shares three personal examples, his own personal conversion testimony. He shares this, the, the, the story of the Jerusalem council. And then he shares the story of Paul confronting Peter in Antioch. And the reason why he's sharing those three stories is he's saying this, the same story or the same gospel message I shared with you that saved me, that was at, uh, at defense at the Jerusalem council, that permeated the, how Peter was acting, it's never changed. It's the same gospel message. And the good news of Jesus is this, that you are justified, you are declared righteous, not by what you do, not by following the Ten Commandments, not by fulfilling the law of Moses, but by placing your faith in Christ. And once he makes that declaration, he has to explain what he means. And so verses 17 through 21 is him explaining what he means by faith will justify you. One of the things that I think is a tension for us today in our world is that we use this word faith, and faith is a biblical word, and faith is a common word we use, but faith or belief may not represent the genuine act of salvation of what we mean. For example, um, I just recently read this week that Barna did this huge study. Barna does a lot of Christian uh, you know, statistics, and they surveyed the American population, and 66% of Americans would agree with this statement that Jesus rose from the dead in physical form. 66%, two-thirds of Americans would agree with the facts, the, the informational facts of the gospel. Yet you and I both know that 66% of people that walking around in our world today, are, or at least in our nation today, are not followers of Jesus. There's a difference between mental assent and mental you know, acknowledgement of, I believe that that may be true, but there's an issue of faith that, what is the kind of faith that saves people? What's the faith that transforms people from death to life? And that's exactly what Paul is going to talk about today. In this passage that we just read, that Steve read this morning, one of the themes that you see that he talks about is this idea of going from death to life. That when you follow the narrative of Jesus' life, you know, he came and he lived and he died, and then he rose again. The narrative of every human being is always we go from life to death. And what Jesus did is Jesus transformed. He flipped that narrative upside down and said, no, Jesus went from death to life. And so if we are going to follow Jesus and we're going to put our faith and trust in him, the narrative of Jesus' life becomes our own personal narrative that what Jesus did now becomes ours. And so I want you to see this idea of going from death to life in this passage again. Look at what it says in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. There's that first movement from death to life. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Death to life. Death to to life. One of the things that, that if you want to understand the gospel, Paul's saying if you really want to understand what Jesus does for you when he justifies you, 
is he moves you from death to life. This is, this is a motif that we see throughout the New Testament. And I want you to see these, the, the, this, this is an idea that, that just Paul came up with. The, this, is, this is all throughout Scripture. I want to show you just four verses briefly. The first person who mentions this idea of going from death to life is actually Jesus. John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The old narrative of Eden that Eden established going from life to death has been transformed and will be transformed through Jesus Christ. And that's the first time we see this idea of moving from death to life. We see it in 2 Corinthians 4, always carrying in the body of death, or the body, the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who, are, who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh from death to life. Two more verses. We see in Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Jesus made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse, or 2 Timothy 1, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. If you are going to place your faith and trust in Jesus, what Paul is saying is you go from death to life. Death to life. If you don't understand anything that I'm going to say this morning, true, genuine faith, the main point I want to talk to you about is genuine faith leads us from death to life. Death to sin, death to self. All these things that we are holding on to for ourselves to give you to give us value and worth and purpose and identity. Paul is saying this, if you place your faith in Jesus, everything changes. And the biggest change is that you are now unified. The story of Jesus now becomes your story. There's a theological concept that is that is that permeates the New Testament in this this idea of being united in Christ. And what we see here in this passage is, is Paul explaining that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, something supernatural and spiritual happens to us. That it's not just a mental ascent of, I believe in the facts of the gospel, that Jesus lived and he is the son of God and you know, he, he lived a perfect life and Jesus went to the cross and Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that he rose again on the third day. And if you place your faith and trust in him, you will have eternal life. I just gave you the basic ideas or the facts about what the good news of Jesus is. But genuine faith, true living faith, takes us to something so much deeper and spiritual. And something happens to us transformationally when we place our faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. When you, if you are justified by faith, this is what it means. It means that everything about your life, there's things that need, you need to die to and that now you need to live to. And so there's three things that, I, that Paul is going to explain in this text that we need to die to. We need to die to our resume. We need to die to addition. And we need to, we need to die to you know, the ticket, our ticket to heaven. This idea, I think, when it comes to our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of faith, 
there are things that can get in the way of what the genuine gospel is all about. And so I want us to see this. Let's look again in verse 17. Verse 17, he's, he's going to be talking about there's things that we need to die to. We need to say no. If we're going to say yes to Jesus, you got to say no to, to some things. For example, I, uh, I, I, my wife and I, we talked about it. I decided to go back to school last summer, and so I started taking classes last summer. And it's, it was a great decision. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I'm going back for another master's. But here's the thing that I had when we were sitting and talking about our life. There are things that I had to put to death, right? For example, I, I had season tickets to Charlotte FC. I love soccer, and I, I, it was the first team I've ever had season tickets for. And my brother and I, we split them and we shared them, and it was great. But here's what I knew, that this upcoming season, I told my brother, I can't do, I can't, I can't do the season ticket thing. Why? Not because I don't love soccer. It's because there is something greater that I, there, in my life that takes priority. And so this idea of death to life is, is really, it's everywhere, a part of our lives. If we really understand the gospel, there are things we put to death. It's in order that we might say yes to Jesus. So look what he says in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, there is some debate on what Paul means here. There are a variety of different interpretations. One idea is that Paul, or that Paul is writing, referring to the previous story he shared about Peter. Remember, Peter goes to Antioch, and he's having a great time at the church. And, you know, Pastor Dan preached on this two weeks ago. And, but as soon as people from James arrive and, and they care about the Jewish laws and ceremonies, Peter and Barnabas start pulling back to make sure that they are observing the law. And Paul's saying, listen, if obeying Jesus, if following Jesus means that we're going to disobey the law, does that make us a sinner? No, because, because what Jesus did is greater than the law. And if I try to rebuild this idea of, uh, of uh, Paul talks about this wall, dividing wall of hostility that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles. If I'm building up that wall that Jesus tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Some people believe that's really what he's talking about here. Some people would think that other, the other interpretation, he's just talking generally about if we're going to be justified by faith and we continue sinning, does that mean that Christ is the author of sin? We all struggle with sin post-salvation. So what does that mean? And so those are the two options that Paul means here. I tend to lean towards the Peter explanation, but doesn't mean that you're going to hell if you disagree with me, all right? The point is, Paul is making the point that the law, the law serves a purpose, but the law does not save. In fact, look what he says in verse 19. For through the law... I die to the law so that I might live to God. This is the first statement that he makes from death to life. What does Paul mean that through the law, I die to the law? What he's saying is this. If I'm going to, if I'm going to apply the law the way it was meant to be applied, the way that God gave the law to Moses and, and given to his people at Mount Sinai, if I fully understand what the purpose of that law was, I understand a couple things about this law. And Paul explains this later on. We're going to get into this in some other passages in the future. But the law was given to teach us what righteousness is. 
You see, in our world today, we all want to make up our own, our own list of what's right and what's wrong. But what God did with the revelation of his word on Mount Sinai, he said, here is the definitive standard of righteousness and unrighteousness. Here's what it is. And so the law is good. It's useful for understanding what's right and wrong. It's good for teaching us that when we approach the law, I can't keep the law. The the law is useful for that. The law is also useful if I go to the law and through the law, it will lead me to a place that says this, I cannot make myself righteous. I cannot redeem myself. I need something or someone to cover my sin with blood. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this picture of the atoning sacrifice for sin. And what Paul is saying is through the law, when I go to the law and I walk through the law, it brings me to Jesus. It brings me ultimately to -to face-to-face with someone who lived the perfect life who fulfilled the law, and who was my atoning sacrifice for me and my sins on the cross. So therefore, once, I, once the law brings me to Jesus, I don't, once I have Jesus, I don't need the law anymore. It has served its purpose. And so if you think that, that going back to the law to save you, to justify you, once you have Christ, you're messing it up. That's not the purpose of it. And so, and so what, Pete, what Paul is saying is, look at the law and use the law for what it's meant to be used for. One of the things I did a couple years ago, well, three years ago when COVID was going on, uh, I like to call it the introvert's paradise. You know, when you were, those of you who are introverted, you're like, man, that was the greatest time of my life. Three months, I didn't have to go anywhere. People weren't asking me to do anything. But, for, you know, for a lot of us, we... we we took up hobbies or we did something, and I built my wife a greenhouse. My dad taught me how to frame when I was younger, and so I knew a little bit about framing, and so I built her, I built four walls, and I, I know enough about geometry, I can make angles, and so I built her this, this greenhouse. And so I enjoyed it so much, but all I had was this hammer. And so, so two, a year after that, I decided to buy one of those framing nail guns. You know what I'm talking about? Like those... It's kind of like the things you, when you hold, you want to grunt, you know? And uh, I bought it right after I bought my Prius because I just felt like I was in danger of losing my man card. If I had a framing gun, it would bounce out the Prius. So, so I had this framing, and, he, and I'm telling you, a framing gun is awesome. I mean, you're like, and you just feel like, yes, there's power, you know, and I'm just making things. I mean, a framing gun does an amazing job of nailing pieces of wood together. Amen? I mean, it's awesome. But what that framing gun can't do, it cannot comb my hair very well. It can't mix soup together well. There's a lot of things that, that I, if I try to do more than what that tool that was meant for, it's going to be clunky. It's going to be awkward. And it's not going to be used for the right purpose. Listen, the, one of the things that Paul makes clear is the law is good. But if you try to use the law to earn righteousness, you've got it wrong. Use the law for what it was meant to do. It's meant to show us that we were sinners, meant to show us what righteousness is, and to lead us to Jesus. And what Paul says is, listen, through the law, 
I die to the law so I might live to God. The first thing you've got to put to death, you've got to put to death your resume. You've got to put to death your resume. What Paul's saying is if you think that you can, by keeping the law, that, that's going to earn you something before God to make you acceptable for God, that needs to be put to death. This idea that I have a resume of my own good deeds. Here's how well I have done at keeping the Ten Commandments. Here's how well I've done at being a spiritual person. And whether we're going to go by the moral standard of God's Word or even our own standard or culture standard, we all have in our minds our ideas of how well we're doing, how righteous or unrighteous we are. But what Jesus came to do is he came to, to diminish any righteousness that you and I have ever lived. And so one of the things that the gospel teaches us is the only resume that saves you is Jesus' resume. If you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and he was to say, okay, I'm going to, I want to let you into spending eternity with me, what would be your answer? What would be the, the reason that Jesus asked you, what would be that reason? If you say, well, hey, Jesus, because I, I was baptized and I went to church X amount of Sundays, and I gave us certain things, and I kept these commandments. These not so well, but I, here's, my, here's my spiritual resume of how well I did at obeying your commandments. Jesus is going to take that resume, and he's going to throw it away. He doesn't care about your resume. Your resume doesn't matter. There's only one resume that gets you into heaven. And if he was to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? The only answer is, I have placed my faith and trust in what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross. It's his righteousness, not mine. I don't deserve this. He took away my sins and he gave me his righteousness. And here's Jesus' resume. And God will say, come on in. Come close. See, that's the only response. If we think that, that God will be impressed to do anything. Look at verse nine, or sorry, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If it is Jesus' death plus my good works, that's not good enough. Jesus died for, if Jesus' death means anything, if Jesus' death has any meaning in your life, it is for your complete righteousness and nothing that you've done on your own. And how that's applied is, number one, if you're sitting here this morning and thinking that your spiritual resume is going to get you into heaven, that's an idea you need to die to. And you have to embrace Jesus' righteousness for you. But there's another application, and I think this is for those of us who have even accepted Jesus as our Savior, that when it comes to our own struggle with sin, right, that when the Christian sins, what do we do? We can still have this resume mindset that says, okay, I've messed up here. I didn't obey here. God, I've really been messing up this week. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some extra good things. You know, things that the Bible says that I should do. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to even out my, the bad things I've done with the good things that I've done. to kind of equally, and maybe I'll even do a little bit more good things so that God's happy with me. No, that brings the same mindset into your life. That God says, do away with that. Remember one of the five questions that we asked at the beginning of this series. Number one, do I understand the gospel? Number two, do you believe the gospel? Number three, can I articulate the gospel? Number four, can I defend the gospel? And number five, can, how is the gospel impacting my life? 
If you think that your righteous deeds somehow cancel out your sin in any way to make you more lovable to God, that is wrong. Jesus, God accepts us, he embraces us, he loves us, not because of our righteousness. So don't fall back to this idea, even if you're like, no, I know I'm a Christian, I know I'm saved, but I just want God to like me. No, that's not how the gospel works. The gospel makes you acceptable to God, even in our sin. That's why it says in Hebrews that we should boldly approach the throne of what? Of grace. It's, it's, our un, it's his undeserved favor towards us. We do not make ourselves any more acceptable to God. And I don't care if you are, when you die and go to heaven and you are glorified and you are made perfect and you never sin ever again, you cannot be more loved by God than you are at this moment. That's how powerful his love is. And that's the reality of the gospel. Die to the resume. We've got to die to this idea that somehow my righteous deeds count for anything. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our righteousness. And it doesn't mean that, that God doesn't want us to live for him. In fact, we're going to look at that later. Paul's going to explain that a little bit later. But it does mean this, that our righteous deeds do not make any difference on how God loves us and how, he, how we are entered into this justification by faith. So that's number one. The second thing we've got to die to, we've got to die to addition. Die to addition. I'm not just talking about math here. What do I mean by this? Die to addition. Let's look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Remember, one of these things that we're talking about, this unity in Christ, being united with Christ. And one of the aspects of being united with Christ is that his righteousness now becomes my righteousness. But one of the things that this Paul is saying here is that Listen, Christ is, when we, when we, by faith, when we place our faith and trust in him, the Holy Spirit and God does a work inside of us. We now become identified with him in his death. In fact, that verb tense right there, I have been crucified with Christ, that is a, that's a, a, a perfect passive indicative, which means that something is happening towards us. It is God, it is Jesus who is acting on our behalf. He unifies us with him in his death. And now what's happening? But Christ who lives in me. Both of these verbs are verbs that are attributed to Jesus. That the moment of salvation, God is doing a work inside of us. And so what that means is Jesus saying, I'm, I'm taking over it all. I don't want a part of your life. I want all of it. You don't just kill a part of your body. You don't just kill a part of yourself. You kill all of it. Death is complete and total. And one of the mistakes I think we make today, especially in our, in our, in our modern-day understanding of faith, in our modern-day understanding of spirituality, is that people have tried to add Jesus to their life and not give Jesus their life. You know, th this, is, this is very common, especially in our, in our world where where the exclusivity of Jesus, it is Jesus alone, faith alone that saves us, that there is by no other name is anyone saved under heaven, but by the name of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people, there's a high value of spirituality today. And sometimes that high value of spirituality want to make everyone say, well, I love 
you know, I love the Buddhists and I love the Muslims and I love the, I love, I just, and we love all people, but the reality is all the different faith systems that exist, they're not all right. We talked about this a few weeks ago with this idea of pluralism, right? How it permeates, has, has, has infected our, our way of thinking. And if you try to say, you know what, I'm going to add Jesus to my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and accept Jesus. I want Jesus to be a part of my life. And he just kind of covers this, this little corner over here. And I've got my Jesus thing going on. I've got this thing going on. I've got, no, no. And God's like, that's not how it works. I remember talking to a missionary in India. One of the things that he said is, you can get a lot of people in India to show up to a, to a church meeting, to a spiritual service. And it's because most, most Indians are very spiritual in nature. In Hinduism, there are literally millions of gods. And so when you tell them about Jesus and say, hey, do you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You can get a sea of people to come forward and to receive Jesus. But what they've got to make clear is that by saying yes to Jesus, you've got to abandon all your other Hindu gods. See, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about adding Jesus to your life. We're talking about making Jesus your life. That there is one singular identity, this idea of being unified with Jesus. Therefore, this idea, I no longer live. It's no longer I who live. If I've been crucified with Christ, there's something, a spiritual reality of Jesus taking over my life. He is now my identity. He owns it all. It's not just a part of my life. It's all of my life. You know, in my wallet, I got some cards. I got lots of cards. But there's, there's a couple cards here that, that are important. And, and, you know, these are my ID cards. So, so obviously I have, you know, I've got my, my driver's license. That's really important, right? That's really good. Um, Costco, that's a great card. I use that at least once a week, right? Whenever I need a big bag of food, that's where I go. Um, I've got my AAA card. That's really good, especially if you're traveling. I get this for my family. I've got teenage drivers. AAA is really helpful when, you, when, you, when your car's not working, you're stuck somewhere, right? And then I've got, man, I've even got my dental insurance card, right? Don't zoom up. I don't want you to use my info, all right? But this is good in case when I go to the dentist, I need a service done, and I'll show them I can come here and get two free cleanings a year. Now, now when I look at these cards, I think what we tend to do with Jesus is we tend to I will pull up my, God, I need something for you at a discounted rate. Please help me. God, I'm in trouble. I'm stuck. I, you know, you need, to, you need to show up in a big way. God, there's something I have for you to do that, you know, these are all wonderful cards. But if we try to use Jesus like we use these cards... It's not, it's not the way. That's not the purpose of a relationship. That's not the purpose of faith. What Jesus does is he takes this one, my ID. And this is the one that's out of the most important because this tells everyone who I am. I just bought a new car last week and I got rid of the Prius, okay? Got rid of the Prius, bought a truck. I got double the man card. I got, my, I got the, 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 the hole punched. But I needed this card to tell people this is who I am. This is proof of who I am. Jesus doesn't want to be any of these other cards. He wants to be our identification. He wants you to say, no, this is, I want you to, to I'm your ID. 
Find your life in me. I don't want you to find any other identification, anything else. And here's what I know Jesus does. If what Jesus does in our life, once he, you know, we've been crucified with Christ, is no longer I who live, it is Jesus who lives in me. The things we've got to put to death, Jesus already knows what we need to be putting to death. Because these ideas of, of who I am, what I find my value in, what I find my purpose in, um, those are things Jesus says, give to me. Sometimes they're good things. But maybe we find our identity in our finances, our financial security. Maybe we find our, ID in, our identity in, in you know, our family. I've got, the, I've got the best family. These are all wonderful things. But sometimes, probably most of the time, God is working inside of us to confront those other competing identities, to confront us and say, that needs to be put to death. Put that to death so that I, you can have the fullness of my identification in your life. When, when, when Jesus says, I've been crucified with Christ, is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What Paul means by that is that when we, everywhere we walk into, there is a reality that, that Jesus is saying, I want you to act I want you to say, I want you to behave, I want you to live, I want everything in that moment to those people in that environment to be a representative of me. That's what he means. It's no, it's, it is not about, I, Jesus, I need you to be a part of my life. It's Jesus taking over your life. And when Jesus knows that there's parts of your life that are not under his lordship or control, what God tends to do is he tends to put things in your life to confront that in your life. Some of you are going through some things right now that are confronting a competing identity in Christ. You're having issues in your family because he's saying, stop trying to find your ultimate joy in your family. Family's wonderful. Family's good. But where do we find our ultimate joy? You know, you, you, my occupation, this is, this is what I do. What if God takes you out of your occupation and out of your status and out of your control and puts you in a place where you are out of control? Can you still have joy? God is always working against the competing identities, the competing joys in our life. And what we've got to do as followers of Jesus is say, you know what? I've got to put that to death. If we have been crucified with Christ, there's no longer us who live, then may Jesus live out his life in us and through us. This is God's work. We cannot fool ourselves in thinking that I'm just going to add a little bit of Jesus to my life, and that's then, then I'm okay. You will, God will not take a part of your life. He wants all of it. And that's number two. We've got to die to addition. And number three, we've got to die to the ticket. We've got to die to the ticket. Look at the second part of verse 20. It says, In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, I want you to do something for me. Circle, underline that phrase, in the Son of God. There are over 200 times when Paul, in his writings, in all of his letters, adds a phrase of, in Christ, in Jesus, in the Lord, or in the Son of God, however it may be. 200 times Paul uses this phrase, or this something similar to this. Why is he saying this? Because what he wants us to understand is that there is, a, there is a true union of relationship here. You see, one of the things that we tend to do in, in our life, especially those of us who've grown up in the church, 
you might hear the gospel. Hey, you need to pray and repent and receive Jesus by faith. And when we hear that, we say, man, that sounds really good. I'd like, I'd like, Jesus, I'd like Jesus to save me. And at that moment of salvation, we tell, we're promised eternal life. But our mentality is, Jesus, I'm receiving eternal life from you. I've got my ticket. Thanks, Jesus. I'll talk to you later. I'll, I'll live my life the way I want to, but I know I've got fire insurance. I know I've got my ticket to heaven because I prayed and received Jesus. That's not what Paul means by you, are, you will be justified by faith. Because remember, one of the things that the Judaizers were attacking Paul with is saying, listen, if all you need is faith, what's going to keep you, you know, in line to actually obeying God? You need to obey the law so that you can understand what God expects from us. And what Paul is saying is there is something deeper at work in the gospel, something deeper at work that Jesus does inside of us at the moment of salvation. And yes, he is, we are unified with him, but what, he do, what happens is now our life is not about 10 things or, or 600 things or 613 laws, whatever there is. It's about a million things. That's about a million ways to respond. It's not a list of rules. It is now a new way of living. That's why Paul says, in the life I now live, if I've been crucified with Christ and Christ is now working his way out in my life, now the life I live, everything that I'm doing in the body, I'm doing by faith in the Son of God. And here's the last verse, last part. Who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul knows this. The greatest motivation in life that's going to keep you living and obeying Jesus and obeying God is not knowledge of the law and understanding of all how the law works itself out. It's understanding the fullness of of God's love for us, then when we live in light of his love and his sacrifice, that's going to make me respond, yes, God, now I want, I want what you want. I'm now putting to death these, these old ways, these old patterns, these old desires, and now the very things, I, God, you want me, and now I want you. I'm, do, I'm putting to death the ticket, and I'm, I'm coming, letting come alive this idea of this relationship with Jesus that is active and ongoing. You know, in, uh, as, as I'm reading and studying about marriages, one of the things that they say in every marriage, in most marriages, that one person is more of the pursuer in the relationship. There's usually one person within a marriage relationship that has this kind of this innate sense of, of connectivity or connection. And so, so what happens is usually in a marriage, there's someone who's like, hey, let's, let's get closer. I sense we're not talking as much. Hey, let's do this together. And there tends to be some person that maybe it's they're not bad, but they just don't feel the same weight of connectivity as you do. And that's, it's good when couples can learn who's the pursuer and that they can both correspond to the pursuit and they learn how to pursue each other. That's a very good thing. Typically, not in every marriage, usually it's the female that is more apt or has that aptitude towards connectivity, right? And so one of the things that, that we need to understand, in, in mar like in marriage, if, if someone is pursuing the, the spouse, hey, let's, let's, let's connect, let's go do these kinds of things. If you, if you get married and you're like, hey, 
we got married, you know, the couple comes down the aisle, they exchange vows, they give rings, there's a beautiful ceremony, and after the honeymoon, they one says, listen, well, I kind of like sleeping in my own bed. And I really need my own space. I'd like to have separate bathrooms, separate bedrooms. Um, you know, let's just kind of, you know, just kind of live our own lives. How are things that's going to go? How's that going to go in that marriage relationship? Not well. In fact, once what happens in marriage is the reason why most marriages need counseling and need repair is because the, something happens when the pursuer stops pursuing. And what, what has to happen, they have to learn how to pursue each other again. One of the things that is true about Jesus is Jesus is always pursuing you. He's always pursuing you. And what he wants us to do, what Paul's saying is when we live our lives out in the flesh, that we're living out our lives in Christ Jesus in view of his love and his sacrifice for me. I always live my life out in, in view of God's pursuit of me. So, so again, there's, there's not a list I'm trying to live by. Now, now the thing that matters to me is I just want to pursue God. I'm putting to death my own ideas of life. I'm putting to death my own path, and I'm accept, I want to pursue Jesus alone. This is what Jesus invites us into. This is the reality. One of the things I realized is that this idea of being, un, being unified with Christ, remember I said this is a theological term, and this is not new to Paul. This is not new to just Jesus. This has been God's desire from the beginning. This was God's desire in Eden. God's desire in Eden was, was to have a place that God and man could walk together and commune together. But something happened in Eden. And what happened in Eden is that mankind believed that, you know what, I want to be in charge of my own life. And I want my own way. And we rebelled against God, against his one law, and said, we want to be gods over our own life. And what you see throughout the story of Scripture is God continually coming to his people and saying, I want to be with you. That's the whole, that was the whole point of the tabernacle and temples, that God's presence with his people, that they, he could be close to them. But yet it was an imperfect setup because of the sinfulness that existed in the nation. So there was tents and there was a holy of holies and there was blood and there were sacrifices but this is the whole reason Jesus came, because when Jesus came, he was the fulfillment of all those things. So therefore, now, what we have in Christ, what Paul's trying to explain to them is, there's this beautiful union that we now have with God. We no longer need the law. We no longer need the temple. We no longer need the sacrifices. We have been united with Christ. Stop thinking that the law accomplishes anything for you. One of the things that, that we have to remember in life is that Jesus' work, the person of Jesus, is enough. He's enough for, for your righteousness. He's enough. His blood is enough to cover your sins. And it's faith in him alone that accomplishes salvation. No one else. So when Paul says, hey, by faith you are justified, 
this is what he means. What he means is you've got to die to the law. You've got to die to your own resume, spiritual resume. You've got to die to this understanding. I'm just going to add a little Jesus to my life, but I still want to do my own thing. I want to, I want to have my, my law as well. Or I want to have my own issues. I want to have my own identity in something else. I've got to die to the ticket that God wants something so permanent with me in my own soul that it means that we're pursuing one another. This is what it means to walk by faith, to live by faith, and what justification does for us. That death leads to life. Three questions, and then we're done. Number one, what works are you still trusting in to make you acceptable to God? What works are you still trusting in that make you, to make you acceptable to God? If you're sitting here this morning and you're believing that it is, it's, what you, it's what you have done that is somehow making you acceptable to God, you have got to die to that belief and live and put your faith alone in Jesus. And if you don't know how to do that or you have questions about that, you can come see me afterwards. We have a prayer team out in the lobby that would love to talk with you and answer any questions you have about your spiritual journey. But don't leave here today thinking that your good acts or your righteousness accomplishes anything. Number two, what do you need to put to death in your life? If you have been crucified with Christ and Christ is now living in you, there's something in your life that needs to be put to death. What ideas, what, what identities, what values do you need to put to death today to fully embrace the identity you have in Jesus? Number three, what does, what does in Christ look like for you today? What does that living your life in Christ look like? Again, it's not 613 laws. There's a million different ways for us in this room of how, what this looks like in our schools, in our marriages, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. This living in Christ changes everything. What does it look like for you? What is the Spirit saying to you right now in your heart and in your mind?